This is the Sex and Psychology Podcast, and it's the sex ed you never got in school and won't find anywhere else. I am your host, Dr. Justin Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. In the 1960s, William Masters and Virginia Johnson famously studied the physiology of human sexual response in their lab. They recruited hundreds of individuals and couples to participate in observational sex studies. Participants were hooked up to various pieces of technology that recorded what was happening inside the body while they engaged in masturbation and sexual intercourse. One of the fancy pieces of equipment they used was a motorized dildo with a built-in camera that could record what was happening inside the vagina during sexual stimulation. They somehow managed to pull this off in the 1960s in the southern state of Missouri, and no one else since has come close to capturing such a wealth of data about human sexual response. But therein lies the problem. While the work of Masters and Johnson was revolutionary for its time and taught us so much, it had its limitations. The model of sexual response they developed became highly influential in the field and set the stage for how sexual disorders were defined and treated for decades. And in the process, it turbocharged the medicalization of sex that we see today. So let's talk about it. In today's show, we're going to discuss some of the things that Masters and Johnson got wrong, the problem with over-medicalizing sexual problems, including why we need to stop reaching for a pill to treat everything, and the tricky business of defining what constitutes a sexual disorder without pathologizing normal sexual variations or promoting the idea that there's only one valid way of having sex. I am joined once again by Dr. Cynthia Graham, a professor of gender studies at Indiana University and a senior scientist at the Kinsey Institute. She has been the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Sex Research since 2009. Her current research focuses on male condom use, hormonal contraceptives, women's sexuality and sexual pleasure, sexual problems, and sexual health among older adults. I can't wait for this conversation. Stick around and we're gonna jump in right after the break. If you're looking to level up your sex life or get the passion back in your relationship, check out Beducated, a revolutionary form of online sex education. Their online courses can help you to increase your sexual knowledge and skills. They can also help you to cultivate more satisfying relationships. Beducated has courses for everything, including how to enhance intimacy, awaken pleasure, explore new sexual horizons, and connect on a new level. The content is amazing, and there's a lot to learn from these courses. Try them all today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 40% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. There's also a 14-day money-back guarantee. Check the show notes for the link, and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. Enjoy! If you love the science of sex as much as I do, consider becoming a friend of the Kinsey Institute at Indiana University. The Kinsey Institute is the world's premier research organization on sex and relationships, and you can help them continue the legacy of Dr. Alfred Kinsey, whose pioneering research changed everything we think we know about sex. Visit kinseyinstitute.org to make an impact. Your donations can help support ongoing research projects on critical topics. You can also show your support by following Kinsey Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for supporting sex science. Okay, Cindy, I want to speak with you about the problem 
with sex problems. And I want to start with a little bit of historical context. And something that I think many listeners will be surprised by is that sexual dysfunctions actually didn't appear in the DSM until the third edition in 1980. Like they just didn't really exist as a category before that. And these disorders were developed around Masters and Johnson's classic model of human sexual response, which proposes that there's this universal cycle of excitement, arousal, orgasm, and resolution in men and women alike. And sexual disorders represented problems with a specific phase of the cycle. However, many criticisms of this approach of defining disorders have emerged. So tell us, what was the problem with using the Masters and Johnson model to define sexual disorders? Yeah, really good question. So it was used, it was absolutely the basis for DSM, early DSM editions. Just say before I answer, it was actually not used for DSM-5. I was a member of the working group on that. We absolutely did away with the idea of that as the basis. There's so many reasons, but I'll summarize briefly. Um, The first idea is that the sexual response cycle is universal and linear. So we know, for example, a number of things that 20 or 30 years ago we don't, and we particularly have good research on women. We have less on men's experiences of sexual uh, sexual activity and sexual response and problems as well. So we know that, for example, arousal and desire, right? I should say desire and arousal because that's the way it went, are not really separable for a lot of people. Women in particular don't describe them being very discrete phases. They say that one goes into the other. I can't really say which is first. And Ellen Lan, you know, really well-known sex researcher, um, talked about arousal and desire being two sides of the sexual coin, um, which is I thought was a lovely expression. So that's one thing. Secondly, we know that a lot of people having sex don't experience orgasm. So it was seen as this universal part of the human sexual response cycle by Masters and Johnson. Resolution, there's very little research on anyway, and very, almost nothing on women. So the idea that there's this universal cycle it just doesn't map onto reality at all. And I think it was problematic for so many reasons, but one of them is the idea that this was the normal, right? This was the normal phase of sexual response. And that if you didn't have this, well, particular orgasm, then, you know, sex, you were not normal, basically. So um, I think we did well in, in not using that as a framework in DSM-5. So one of the ways we did that was for women's sexual disorder, not for men's because there was a lot less research, but we basically didn't have separate desire and arousal disorders, but we have one sexual arousal interest disorder. And that was based on research, a lot of research that suggested they, again, they were not discrete. It's very difficult also in terms of problems to find in studies, and there's a ton of research on this, women who have arousal problems, but don't also have desire problems. Mm-hmm. They really are are linked quite closely. And so studies that tried to find women with female sexual arousal disorder, FSAD, as it was called in DSM-4, found it really difficult to recruit women just with that disorder. I mean, it was revolutionary at the time, and it informed a lot of research, of course, but I think it no longer served its purpose, really. (laughs) Outlived its usefulness in some ways. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. I I still talk about the Masters and Johnson model extensively in my textbook on human sexuality because it was so revolutionary at the time. You know, back then, we did not know much about sex in the human body. And to have people like in the lab studying sexual response was so, so incredibly valuable. But 
you know, it did contribute to some problems. One being that it sort of laid the basis for, you know, how sexual disorders were defined and what is normal and what is not when it comes to sex. But it also contributed more broadly to the medicalization of sex by really just focusing on the physiology and, you know, essentially saying what's healthy and what's unhealthy when it comes to sex. And while Masters and Johnson themselves were pioneers in sex therapy and their approaches were heavily psychosocial, their model laid the groundwork for this very biomedical approach that we see today when it comes to sexual disorders. So tell us a little bit about what the medicalization of sex means and the problems with taking an overly medicalized approach to sexuality. Yeah, happy to talk about that. I have quite strong views about it. <laughs> but it's just to be upfront. The first thing that uh, that never stops kind of bothering me, really, and I see it a lot in articles still that are submitted to a journal that I, that I edit, Journal of Sex Research, is this idea that the prevalence of sexual dysfunction is so high. It's an urgent public health concern. People use those words. And this goes back to a really early study based on a representative U.S. survey in the States that basically the paper published in the top medical journal claimed that over 40%, 43% of women, to be precise, of American women had a sexual dysfunction. And the huge problem with that is that this study didn't assess any distress. And we know now so well from uh, a lot of research for men and for women both, that if distress is not assessed, then yes, you know, prevalence of sexual problems is common. But if you add distress and you add frequency, so not infrequent, but almost all or all occasions, and you add severity of the problem, the percentages drop usually to below 4%. They're really, really low. And so the problem I have in terms of a lot of the research on drug development that we've particularly seen for women recently and for sexual desire problems is that it's based on this idea that prevalence of sexual dysfunction is so high. And I think that's really worrying. And I think the way that that's sold to women as being something that is problematic, even if, you know, they're six months postpartum, they've had just had a baby and they are experiencing loss of sexual desire. That's not a sexual dysfunction. Not at, not at six months after childbirth. And so, but that's very much still around that idea. And I guess another, I could talk about this too much, but another issue I have is the idea that some kind of drug treatment should be the first treatment of choice. And we know that there's a lot of psychological treatments. You mentioned Masters and Johnson, their approach still used in revised ways. Um, there's newer methods like mindfulness. You know, Lori Brado has done a lot of research. There's a lot of other things that should be tried. And I have an issue with the drug treatments, even the ones that are FDA approved, having such a strong prevalence of side effects. That's an issue. And the idea that sex has to be good all the time, you know? Yep. As someone who did sex therapy, I can say I saw that with some of my clients that they would they would come in and they would see a problem if, you know, one person had the flu and was not interested in sex because they had sex every day up to then. I mean, thing that sounds extreme, but that was a real case. <laughs> It does sound extreme, and that is fascinating. I've uh, never heard anything quite like that before. 
But yeah, it gets at this idea of, you know, what is a sexual disorder? How do you define it and assess it on surveys? I wanted to, to mention a couple of things. One is going back to that Masters and Johnson model, a point I had wanted to make earlier was that people have started going back and looking at the sexual response cycle in more detail. And they're finding that it's much more diverse and varied across individuals than previously thought. And Masters and Johnson did kind of acknowledge that, you know, women might have more variable patterns than men do because women might have multiple orgasms. But in recent research, we see that men have very variable patterns as well. And so saying that one is the norm and it's the norm for everyone just seems to be problematic. And that's why we can't use that as the basis for defining what sexual problems are. And, you know, something else as you were speaking, where you mentioned that as many as 43% of women have a specific sexual dysfunction. You know, when you're just asking people on surveys, have you had a sexual problem in the last year? What do they mean by that? Did they have a sexual dysfunction or did they just have a sexual disappointment? You know, that's a point that I often like to make is that, you know, our body doesn't always do what we want it to do. And that's okay. That's normal. And sometimes you might just have a disappointment because your body wasn't doing what you wanted, maybe because you were tired or stressed or had one too many drinks or something like that. So a disappointment is one thing. A difficulty is quite another. Completely agree. And I think sometimes... This is the issue I have with medicalization too, is that sometimes people's expectations are unrealistic. It's just what you said, are unrealistically high. I remember working, there used to be a clinic here at the Kinsey Institute for almost 10 years, and I saw quite a lot of younger men. And their first sexual experiences, they would, with a partner, they would sometimes lose their erection, and they would really react and catastrophize that. And so one of the really simple things was just reassuring them that, you know, erections come and go. <laughs> they wax and wait. And they, but it could really lead to a vicious circle, which happens a lot with sexual problems. And I would see some men, for example, who would uh, feel that they were coming too quickly, they would hesitate getting into another sexual relationship. It was really sad, but very easily, actually, with therapy, pretty easily treated. And uh, again, some people will be looking for medication for that early on. And I'm talking about here particular erection problems when, in fact, some other things might be reassurance and normalizing. Just what you said is your body may not always be doing, and that's okay. And a partner will probably think it's okay, too, even though you're worried they don't. Yeah, And I think a big part of this can also help to explain why there's been so much said recently in the popular media about growing epidemic of erectile dysfunction among young men. Is it that they really have ED or is it just that they have some sexual disappointments and because they're being pushed Viagra every day by you know, all these companies and commercials and everything, like, is that just making them feel insecure or inadequate uh, because they don't always perform the way that they want to? Well, performance variability is the norm, right? If you were rock hard all the time, all day, every day for your entire life uh, in every sexual situation, like that would not be normal. No, no. And probably not even appreciated by (laughs) by part. I I completely agree with you about that. And there there are some good studies on young men using Viagra. And yeah, I wonder sometimes about what other things they've tried mm-hmm. before. Of course, sex therapy isn't available easily either. And again, it varies by country how available it is too. But there are really, sometimes it's not even sex therapy, it's just information and reassurance. And sex educators, of course, have a big you know role and they do play a big role in, in reassuring people about that. But there's still a lot of miscommunication, yes, and misinformation 
I always used to be surprised about that in clinical work, how much people really didn't know about sex when sex was everywhere. It's yeah. everywhere. Do you know? <laughs> yep, it is. I, I've made that point many times that like sex is seemingly all around us, but it's such a taboo subject to talk about. It just doesn't make sense. It's another one of those weird paradoxes. I agree. But I think going back to the medicalization of sex, I think it contributes to this incentive to overstate how common sexual dysfunction is. Because if you can shift the narrative around something to create the appearance of a massive problem, then you can sell people a highly profitable treatment for that. And, you know, that might be happening with some of this talk of an epidemic of erectile dysfunction among young men, well, now that's suddenly a very profitable group of people that you can sell Viagra and Cialis to. And, you know, I think another example of this would be in the push to create drug treatments for low desire in women. With that approach, you know, the medical approach to low desire is that low desire is always a problem and it should have a simple fix just by tinkering with your hormones or neurotransmitters, but it overlooks the fact that sexual desire operates differently in different people. Some people have responsive desire. Some people have spontaneous desire. And so the medical approach might be pathologizing people who just have more responsive desire. It's a problematic way of thinking about and approaching so many things when it comes to human sexuality. Yeah, I agree. And the, the whole idea about spontaneous desires should be, you hear that in studies, particularly some of the studies on, on drug trials for women, that it used to be spontaneous and it, the desire was just there. There's a lot of evidence that we're responding to cues, right, in our environment. Again, going back to Ellen Land's research again. And that idea about spontaneous sexual desire, some people will feel that, experience it like that, but it's likely they're responding to things, either their own fantasies, which you know the most about, um, or things in their environment. If you look at some of the drug trials that were done, you know, for drugs that have been approved by the FDA for sexual desire, they really... Uh, some of the transcripts are quite telling. So some of the women talk about wanting desire back like when they first met their partner in the first week that they met their... And I, you know, I personally think that's unrealistic. <laughs> I mean, it sounds nice, but yeah. It does. It, might be it sounds very nice. It does sound nice. Um, but, and it disregards the fact that we know so much about sexual desire being affected by all kinds of things. You know, relate, of course, relationship factors. Absolutely. So again, it used to surprise me in clinical work when sometimes you'd have a couple coming in and their relationship was really quite difficult and quite poor, but they wanted to focus on the sexual aspects first. And that might sometimes be effective, but to be honest, not very often because they couldn't work on doing homework together, assignments together. They, you know, sometimes didn't like each other <laughs> much anymore. Those things matter and attraction or they weren't attracted to the partner. So yeah, that's So the, another, I think the focus on, on the drug treatment for me is that a lot of it disregards all of these other things. Everything you're saying there all goes back to kind of the difficulty with defining what a sexual disorder or sexual problem is. Because if you just ask people on a survey, have you experienced difficulties with low sexual desire in the last year? Well, what do they mean by low desire? You know, are they talking about, well, I don't have the initial passion that I had in the early phase of my relationship with my partner? Or is it that I don't feel spontaneous desire? Or is it just that I have no desire for sex at all? Like those all mean different things. 
Yeah. Or, or sometimes people will read that interpret as I don't initiate. Well, a lot of people don't initiate and they still really enjoy sex. And they, that's something that I think people are really mis, kind of misinformed or mis, misunderstand. I think that's a very good point. And a lot of the surveys do ask about it in just that way. In the last several months, have you had low or absent desire? You know, something along those lines as well. I think the distress aspect is really crucial. And one thing I think we do still have a lot uh, way to go to understanding is I find it really fascinating for me, always have done actually why, and there've been a little bit of research on this, but why, what predicts distress more than what predicts problems? What predicts why? Because we know that some people have sexual problems and are not distressed. Some people are distressed, but objectively don't have any sexual dysfunction. You know, if they complete a questionnaire, but they're distressed about their sex life. So there's these four different groups. And I don't think we understand a lot about those. But I think a lot of it is to do with things like misinformation, wondering, you know, about people often misinterpret what their partner's feeling. They don't communicate. So one study that I that I led on with the UK's big nationally representative survey in the UK, the NatSell survey, found that one of the biggest predictors of low sexual desire in women across a wide age range was lack of communication about sex with their partner. That was one, I think it was maybe the most significant predictor. So going back to that, no drug is going to work on that. So it's something that, again, going back to sex educators and sex therapists too, of course, do stress this a lot. But for young people, they often, as you know, don't talk about sex and they don't talk about desire. And a big part of that is that we just never get sex education that can give us the communication tools that we need, but it also doesn't give us information about our bodies. And, you know, that contributes to a lot of people thinking that they have disorders when they don't. So as another example, if you think about something like premature ejaculation, on average, when you look at studies where guys have used stopwatches to like time, you know, how long it takes to have an orgasm, it's between five and six minutes or so, right? But you have a lot of guys who I've heard from who are like, I can't last longer than 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something. And they, they think they have premature ejaculation. And it's like, dude, you don't. Like, you actually last two or three times longer than average. Like, you don't, you don't have a problem. It's all in your head. It's expectations and it's, and it's and again, not communicating with a partner about it as well. That's a good point. Yeah, those stopwatch studies, I know those studies. I mean, early on, premature ejaculation was defined differently. I'm sure you know this, but it was defined as not being able to last as long as you wanted to. And it, and it shifted more towards actually this time and the stopwatch method and so on. There was a, also a definition early on about not lasting long enough for your partner to reach orgasm. And that's problematic for sure, because that could be an hour and a half, right? <laughs> or it could be that your partner doesn't have an orgasm. And then you, you can't define premature ejaculation on that basis. Honestly, I don't know how you can define premature ejaculation, because if you define it in that subjective way, you're not lasting as long as you'd like. Well, you have some people who are lasting a really long time who are distressed about it. Like they don't have premature ejaculation, right? But then you also have, you know, folks who, you know, I've seen a lot of definitions of premature ejaculation that say if you last less than a minute um, before orgasming, then you have PE. But I know a lot of people who actually find a partner's quick orgasm to be very erotic and they consider it to be like the ultimate compliment or, or turn on. So it's kind of like all subjective. It's all in the eye of the beholder. 
Yeah, it absolutely is. And it all depends on the on the match of the partner. I mean, that's why, you know, desire discrepancy is such an issue because it really depends on, I mean, if you have two people with fairly low desire and, and not much activity, that works just fine. <laughs> you know, usually it does work just fine. So it, it depends a lot. I mean, you talked earlier about different response cycles and no model fitting. I completely agree. But it also varies within individuals as well. So somebody might be, responsive desire might be a big thing at one time in their life or with one partner, but be very different with another partner. It is really partner specific. And I think that's a really important point in all of this is that, you know, sexual difficulties, disorders are, they're relative to what your current circumstances are and what might be a problem in one relationship might be very desirable and a perfect match in another relationship. You know, sometimes we partner with people who just were not very sexually compatible with, or we were compatible for a short time, but we became less compatible over time. And so is it that somebody really has a disorder or is there just a bigger compatibility issue in the relationship? So it adds another wrinkle to all of this. <laughs> and so does age, of course, as well. Age is a huge influence on everything from some of them being more physiologic, but some of them being, you know, it's so common. I remember in research, not only in therapy, seeing young women who hadn't reached an orgasm yet. And it was interesting to see their response when you talked about how, you know, many women start having orgasms only in their 30s or their 40s. Or, I mean, I, I used to see women in clinics who would come in in their 50s, never having had an orgasm. And then it happened pretty easily, <laughs> pretty easily. I mean, really following, you know, really well-validated methods for treating using masturbation and, and, and maybe sex toys, of course, as well. But so I think that's a key thing. And for men, the whole idea about things changing with, well, for women too, not just for men, with age. Done a bit of research on with a team in Europe on older adult sexual health. And one of the things that really... Um, we've done some work, uh, again, with Sasha Stolhofer and a bigger team on sexual aging, successful sexual aging, SSA, sexual aging. And a lot of that is to do with adapting, accepting, adapting to changes and basically changing, not expecting that things are going to be exactly the same. But they report them being very good and they're very satisfied as well. So that's another another key thing that people I don't think are educated about, certainly not about aging and sexuality. Yeah. I mean, if we're lucky enough to get sex ed, it's, you know, early on in life and it just addresses kind of like what you need to know, like as you go through puberty in your teenage years. But, you know, sex is different, I think, in every decade of life. And we need lifelong sex education. It's not like something where you can possibly hope to teach everybody everything they should know about sex in the span of like a one hour course in the fifth grade or something. Like it just doesn't work like that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> but that's the way it's presented. Yeah. You're right. Absolutely right. Yeah. 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 We need continuing education when it comes to sex ed. Now, we've talked a lot about problems with defining sexual disorders or difficulties. And one other one I wanted to mention is that historically, and even still in some definitions today, they've been very heteronormative, where they focus specifically on difficulties around penile vaginal intercourse. So how has that changed over time? And how can we better define sexual difficulties without promoting this idea that there's just one valid form of sex? 
Yeah, that is a great question. And I completely agree. That's been, it's been very heteronormative. Um, one of the things I've been really pleased to see as a journal editor, actually, uh, which I've been doing for a while, 12 years, is that it recently just starting to see a lot more research coming out, both on trans individuals and also on sexual minority, a lot more on asexuality too, which is great. But actually, if you look at the literature, and we reviewed this for things like DSM, it was really sparse about, you know, sexual experiences and sexual difficulties and good sexual experiences of people who are not heterosexual. And this, it still kind of bothers me that they can, there's a lot of studies that still will exclude people who are, are not, without any good rationale, that will often, you know, get a paper rejected. But, but you know, I've been quite pleased to see that change. And in particular, for example, for transgender individuals, just in the last year or two, we've seen some really nice studies coming through. And again, not just on problems, right? Not only on problems, but on sexual experiences, but on problems too. So, I, yeah, I think that's a huge problem. And also the focus, I think, on penetrative sex, as you said, that's changing. It's changed already, but it's still changing more slowly. And um, of course, the whole idea, uh, the ton of research on how do we define sex and, and what does sex mean? But it's rare now, I would say, still happens, but it's rare to see people in a study define sex as only being penile vaginal intercourse. It still happens a little bit and uh, it varies cross-culturally. There's a lot of focus in some countries on penetrative heterosexual sex. And I think the move is in the right direction for sure. And to be much more inclusive in terms of recruitment as well. So in our study, for example, that we're doing now, the trial, we recruit men of any orientation. The one requirement, because it's a condom intervention trial, is they need to have a penis. <laughs> but but that's it. That's it. There's, there's no other requirement. And age, of course, they have to be 16. 16 is okay in the UK without parental consent. But that's it. So I've really seen this, this particularly as an editor that I think it's gradually improving. Still a way to go. <laughs> yeah, I feel like with everything in research, always, always still a way to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> As you were speaking, you brought up the idea of doing this work cross-culturally, and that had me wondering about how do definitions of sexual difficulties vary across cultures? Like, does what it means to have a sexual difficulty mean something different depending on where you are in the world? And I, I would imagine there's probably some truth to that, but I don't know that I've seen much research on it. You know, most of the work on sexual difficulties is very Western in terms of what, you know, constitutes a disorder. But I don't know, do you have any sense of this? Yeah, I do. Actually, I worked on a book uh, it's quite a while ago now, I think. I'm going to forget what year. But um, with Catherine Hall, a colleague um, in New York, called The Cultural Context of Sex Therapy. And it was a fascinating book to work on. We had contributors from around the world, India, Korea, Cameroon. I mean, it was, it was a pretty amazing book, uh, a lot of work. <laughs> but um, it really highlighted that. And in terms of some countries, the focus so much being on men and male sexual problems and women's sexual problems really being seen as much less really important and maybe not needing to be treated, right? Erection problems were huge. And the other thing I would say is some of the work I've done on contraceptives, one study in particular a long time ago, but still a really, for me, a really a study that had a big impact on how I did my work was done in the Philippines and Scotland. Out of that study, what we really came away with was, it probably should be obvious, but is that assessing sexual desire and sexual arousal in women 
It's just completely different in different countries. And it didn't matter whether we had a wonderful team of Filipino clinicians and researchers. Women there just didn't talk about sex in the same way. And they didn't talk about particularly interest in sex and desire. So it wasn't a matter of just translating back, translating a questionnaire. It was a matter of really rethinking whether the constructs that we were looking at were really meaningful. I mean, just what you asked about is, do they mean the same thing? And there are some countries that some problems are much more prevalent. There's some countries where any kind of masturbation for women is still seen as deviant. And, um, you know, in terms of things like orgasmic problems, you can see the impact on that. So, I, But I agree with you that this, the research has been overwhelmingly done in Western countries. When we worked on reviews for the DSM-5, we really saw that. We were really confronted with that. And again, I think it's changing, but there's still an issue around research from other countries getting published and being widely accessible. Yeah, that's definitely a big issue. It's a big issue, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're doing such important work, not just in your own research, but also as the editor of the Journal of Sex Research. And we really appreciate all of your many contributions to this field and helping us to advance our knowledge about human sexuality. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Cindy. It was fun. It was a pleasure to have you here. Uh, Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work, if you have a website or a social media or anything? Sure. Yeah. So I have, I I, I do love social media, as I think you know. And and so I use Twitter a lot. So my Twitter handle is CYGraham underscore Graham. But my bio and actually everything is now on the Kinsey Institute. So under the core staff and gender studies. So I'm a professor in gender studies at Indiana University. And so if people want to see more about research, I'm really happy to be emailed as well. If anybody's interested in, in research, and my email is cygraham at indiana.edu. So I just want to say I love your podcast too. So I was very flattered to be asked on. Well, I am very flattered that you accepted my invitation. (laughs) So thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate having you here. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, sexandpsychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on the socials for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days, X, I think, uh, at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell me what you want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.